Thank you for listening to a podcast of Rock Church. For more information on sermons and events, connect with us online at rockchurchnow.com or search Rock Church Now in the App Store. Live Dead is a call to plant churches among unreached people groups through teams. The heart of Live Dead is to respond to the challenge of access. We are responding in a very simple way. Planting churches among unreached peoples through teams. Teams are groups of people who live in the same city or village. And meet weekly to pray, evangelize, disciple, and plant churches together. We know that we are stronger together than we are apart. A Live Dead team is made up of people with a wide variety of skill sets. And may include people from different organizations, generations, and ethno-linguistic groups. We work in partnership with national believers and the wider body of Christ. Churches are groups of local men and women who have abandoned their former way of life to follow Jesus. Some gather in church buildings, but most will meet secretly in houses. Churches are groups of believers committed to teaching and learning the Bible. Spending time with each other in Christian fellowship, to celebrating the Lord's Supper and baptism, and to a lifestyle of abiding in Jesus. Without a doubt, our world is covered with lost people. We don't have to look far to find someone who is lost and in need of the saving gospel that comes only through Jesus Christ. The Live Dead focus is on access to the gospel. We know of entire countries with fewer than 10 known believers. An unreached people group simply defined is an ethno-linguistic tribe or demographic that is less than 2% evangelical Christian. There are almost 3 billion people and approximately 7,000 people groups in the world today that are unreached. Of those nearly 7,000 people groups, around 3,000 of them are what we call unengaged. No local churches, no missionaries, and no teams resident and working towards church planting. Our goal in Live Dead is to respond to this great need to plant churches that multiply effectively in their own culture. Live Dead is currently active in training church planters and launching church planting teams in eight major regions. Africa, the Arab world, Silk Road, Iran, India, Origins, Russia, and China. In our world today, unreached people tend to be found in countries at war, inhospitable climates, dense cities, unstable governments, and in the midst of challenging security circumstances. In this new normal of instability, we are committed to living, and if needed, dying, among the unreached wherever they are found. Motivated by the love of God, we go where there are no churches and no Christians. We go where there is no gospel message and where Jesus is not glorified. We go for the single and uniting mission of the church. To bring glory to the name of Jesus among every tribe, nation, and tongue. That is why we live dead. Planting churches, unreached people groups, teams. We have been so blessed to have our guest speaker last night and this morning in the first service. You are in store for a timely word from God that will put things in perspective as a follower of Jesus. So let's welcome our guest speaker this morning, Dick Brogdon. In John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says, Peace to you. 
As the Father sent me, so send I you. I was sent to boarding school when I was seven years old. I'm a missionary kid. I was born in Kenya, East Africa. My parents were pioneer church planters, and there wasn't a good school option where they lived. And so I attended this British boarding school, and it was actually fantastic. I learned to play rugby and cricket and field hockey. I learned to conjugate Latin verbs in about the fourth grade and study French and be a part of the Boy Scouts and be part of dramas and adventures. They had a good scripture union. It was a fantastic school, but it wasn't home. I would go to school for three months, and then I would get to go home for one month. And at the end of that three-month term... I would gather my little travel bag and I would go sit on the stone steps of that school, fix my eyes on the bend of the road around which my father would come to take me home. Because all my little heart wanted was to go home. And that is still all that my little heart wants. I want to go home and be with Jesus because this world is not our home we're just a passing through. We are strangers, and we are pilgrims, and we are aliens. The expression, the kingdom of God, is not found in the Old Testament. The closest thing is a reference in Daniel that talks about an eternal kingdom that shall not pass away. That phrase, so common in the New Testament, arose in the intertestamental period as the people of God who had gone into exile, became reconciled to the fact that the kingdoms of men can never solve the problems. It doesn't matter who was king or ruler or judge. Adam messed up. Samson messed up. David messed up. Solomon messed up. Let alone kings like Ahab and Manasseh. Whenever hope was invested in the politics or the kingdoms of men, even if they were godly people, it never worked. And they finally learned the lesson in Babylon, and they said, essentially, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. We're not going to be fooled again. We're not going to put our trust in the kingdoms of men. Our hope our blessed hope that Peter talks about will be the kingdom of God. And what they meant by that was one day the king will come. One day Messiah will come. And when the king comes, that's the only time where all injustice and all poverty and all sin will be dealt with. And so when they would say things like, seek ye first the kingdom of God, they're thinking about that day. The day of the Lord, when Jesus comes, the Messiah comes, when we are told to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, they're thinking about that day when Jesus comes. There's no county, there's no country, there's no city, there's no human heart, including mine, where the will of God is done as it is in heaven, and there shall not be until the king comes. When the king comes, that's the only hope for the world. And we have this longing within us when we understand that, that the only lasting redemption that doesn't relapse back into cycles of sin and depravity is when Jesus comes. And to be Pentecostal is to be so desperate to be with Jesus that we dedicate ourselves to evangelizing the world in the power of the Spirit because only then 
according to Matthew 24, 14, does the end come? So my question for each of you this morning is simply this. Have you forgotten where your home is? And if you've forgotten where our hope is when the king comes and takes us home. And if you want to go home, I want to invite you this morning to fight as Jesus fought and to bleed as Jesus bled and to pray as Jesus prayed. What do I mean when I say that Jesus fought? In Mark chapter 11, it's the last week in the life of Jesus. He's going to the cross. His face is set like a flint to go to Jerusalem, Isaiah tells us. He knows he's going to die for all the sins of the world. He carries the passion for the nations within his breast. And he goes to the Temple Mount just a few days before he goes to the cross. And what does he find? You might remember how the temple was constituted. The Holy of Holies, only one man once a year, the high priest. Then the holy place where the priest would minister. Then the court of Israel where the Jewish men could go. Then the court for the Jewish women. But the most peripheral space on that mountain was called the court of the Gentiles. And this is where God had ordained that all the nations could come and meet with Jehovah. Greeks, Romans, Babylonians. There was this opportunity for the nations to meet the God of Israel. What does Jesus find when he enters the Temple Mount? What has taken the place of the nations? It's marketeers buying and selling, making money over the sacrificial system. And the great missions part of Jesus erupts. He does not like that. We're just going to take a moment and pray. Would you close your eyes and pray? We're helping uh, in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your healing power and your healing touch. We just ask, Lord Jesus, for your help and your intervention. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. You are good. You are faithful. And help us in our time of need. Praise you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Glory to God. Glory to God. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. The Lord is good. The Lord will help us. So as Jesus goes into the Temple Mount, as I said, he sees something that disturbs him. Now, I don't know what your image of Jesus is. I don't know what your picture of Jesus is. But can I remind you, Jesus wasn't white. And he didn't walk around with nicely coiffured hair. And he didn't have a little lamb on his shoulder all the time. Jesus was a Mediterranean man. He was the God man. And he had some things that got him upset. There are some things that stirred up passions in him. And this is one of them. He walks into the temple, the place that he has designed for all the nations to meet with him, and he sees that opportunity has been taken away, so he, he, he goes postal. Can I say that? He gets upset. He's knocking chairs around tables. He's throwing things. John says he made a whip, and he drove them from the temple. So you might have this image of gentle Jesus who never gets angry about anything. This is the angriest we ever see Jesus in the Gospels. Now... We don't know if he laid hands on people or not, but this is what we do know. Have any of you ever been to Latin America or Africa or the Arab world? If so, you have been in markets in these places, and you know that in these markets, there's all kinds of activity going on. There's chickens, camels, bananas, flies, 
meat hanging up on meat hooks. There's all kinds of spices. There's all kinds of smells. There's all kinds of noises. And all of this activity is going on. You can buy stolen cell phones or different goods. You have all of these opportunities, right, to interact. Would it work if you went into a crowded market to say something like this? Picture now a Latin American market or picture an Arab market or an African market. Oh, excuse me, friends. We kind of need this place for a time of prayer. Would you take your stolen cell phones and your bananas and your spices and exit stage left so that we can use it for prayer? Is that going to work? No. Angry Jesus. Eyes flashing and arms thrashing. He's clearing people out of his house. And then he quotes Isaiah 56, which I'll paraphrase. Don't let the foreigners say there's no place for me in God's house. Don't let the eunuch say, here I am a dry tree. For even to them will be given a place better than sons and daughters. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. You know what I call this? What we see in Jesus, that passion, that emotion, that feistiness, I call it apostolic nasty. Turn to your neighbor and say apostolic nasty. Now, don't think gross, don't think disgusting. Here's what I want you to think when we say apostolic nasty. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain it, and then I'm going to give you a definition. You know the name Michael Jordan. You know the name Kobe Bryant. You know the name Tiger Woods. You know the name Muhammad Ali. Let me go a bit older. Does anybody here know the name Pete Rose? Okay, let me take a, a, a baseball example for a moment. Pete Rose had a nickname. He has more hits in baseball than anyone else. Charlie Hustle is what they called him. He was at an all-star game, an exhibition game. It didn't count for anything. This is before it determined who had home field advantage in the World Series. And he's rounding third at an exhibition game, and he wants to get home so badly that he lowers his shoulder. He runs over the catcher. Some of you maybe know the clip I'm talking about. And he puts him into the ground because Charlie Hustle was going to win at all costs. Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Tiger Woods, at that level of athletics, everybody's amazing, everybody's a superb athlete, they have the same coaches, they have the same trainers, the same physiotherapists, all of that's available, but those guys, what made them different and world champions? A little bit of nasty. They weren't just going to win game seven of the finals. They were going to beat your butt in practice. They were going to beat you at tiddlywinks. They were going to beat you first in line to the bus. They were going to take your lunch money every day and enjoy doing it because they had a little bit of nasty. Are you tracking with me? I think it's time in this cancel culture where everyone is afraid to stand and speak truth for us to get a little bit of apostolic nasty. But here's how I define it. A consecrated edginess that fixates on the worth of Jesus and his glory amongst all people. Not a cardinal edginess, not an arrogance, not a pompous spirit, not a critical attitude, but a consecration, a consecrated edginess that fixates on Jesus and his worth amongst nations. Let me give you another example from the life of Jesus. Three chapters before Mark 11, Jesus takes all his disciples on a missions trip. He goes 30 miles off the beaten path, north of Lake Galilee, to a city called 
Caesarea Philippi. It's not a Jewish city. It's a Gentile city, and it's pagan, and it's murderous, and it is sensual. They had a law in the books at one point, you couldn't walk on the main street of town unless you were naked. Every perversion was there. They would sacrifice their children to false gods. And after they would burn those babies on golden altars, they would take those corpses of their own children and throw them down into a pit that was in a cave on the slopes there leading to Mount Hermon. And they had a euphemistic title for that pit in that cave. It was called the gates of hell. And Jesus takes his disciples to a Gentile town, stands in front of the gates of hell, and it is there that he says, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he's making a declaration. There is no place, there is no people, there is no darkness, there is no devil that will overcome the gospel. It will go to all the earth in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the disciples cheer. Yay, that's wonderful. We like that. And then in the very next breath he says, and in order for the gospel to triumph and the church to be planted at the gates of hell, I need to go back to Jerusalem and there I will be mocked and there I will be tried and there I will suffer and there I will die for the sins of the world, to which point Peter says, oh no, Lord, never will that happen to you. And what does gentle, Sunday school, loving, flannel graph Jesus say to his own disciple, get behind me, Satan, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. That's apostolic nasty. That if anything gets in the way of the glory of Jesus advancing to all the nations of the world, even if it comes from his disciple, Jesus ran it over. He cleansed his own temple. He rebuked his own disciple. And that's critical because what I'm, what I'm not saying is attack other ministries, criticize other people, Point the finger outside of yourself. What I'm actually asking is this. What's in your temple? What's on your phone? What are you watching on your Netflix? What are you thinking about in your head? What are you doing in the secret places? How are you spending your money? How are you raising your children? How are you discipling those that you have authority over? An apostolic nasty is simply this. If there's anything in me that does not glorify Jesus, if there's anything in me or in the spheres that I influence and have control over that is not aligned with his great passion to give himself and spend himself for the nations, you've got to cast it out. You've got to run it over. We see this also in the life of Paul. We know that Paul was nasty before he got saved, right? He's persecuting the church. The text says causing havoc. He's throwing him into prison. We think that he was killing some. But somehow after the Damascus Road conversion, we think that Paul got all nice and fluffy. Because after all, he wrote 1 Corinthians 13, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is gentle. Love suffers long. Same dude wrote Galatians. You foolish 
Galatians, who has bewitched you that you so soon leave the gospel of grace to follow another gospel? You might as well go the whole way and castrate yourself. Don't get mad at me. That's in the Bible. He says to Peter, I rebuked him to his face, the head of the Sanhedrin. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. John Mark, you're off the team. Two guys causing trouble in the church, turn them over to Satan for the redemption of their soul. In the book of Titus, he's quoting a poet about the Cretans. He says, they're always lazy, liars, and gluttons. This is not a balanced dude. At the end of Corinthians, three chapters after the love chapter, he ends the book. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. In each of those references, in all of those strong words that Paul said, the gospel was at stake. Peter is being a hypocrite. The Sanhedrin was blocking the advance of the gospel to the nations. John Mark was causing trouble within the team. There is a range of reasons, but whenever something blocked the advance of the gospel to the ends of the earth, Paul ran it over. A consecrated not a carnal, a consecrated edginess that fixates single eyes on Jesus, his work, and his glory amongst all nations. If you want the king to come back, and if you want to go home, you're going to have to have some of that same fight and fire in you. Directed, not at others, directed internally at anything that hindered the glory of Jesus and his fame amongst all people. We're going to have to fight as Jesus fought, and we're going to have to bleed as Jesus bled. In 1960, two missionary doctors married to one another took a vision trip into the middle of the Arabian desert. They came to a small oasis town catchment area of about 1,500 people, and they found a lady who'd been in delivery of a child for three days and about to perish. They diagnosed her that her bladder was so distended with urine that she couldn't give passage through the birth canal. They didn't have their medical instruments with them. And so the man opened up the hood of that rented Land Rover. And he dug around in for the smallest diameter hose he could find. He cut it out of the engine. He made a catheter, handed it to his wife. She inserted it in the lady, drained the bladder, and helped deliver a healthy baby child. The Muslim leader of that area was so thankful. He said, I know you're from a different faith tradition, but I am so grateful that you have saved this woman and her child. I want to give you my blessing to open a clinic. Do the same for our village. And so they did. And through the years, and it exists today as a hospital, they have served and saved Muslim women and children. In the early days of that hospital, they didn't have electricity, so no generators, no fridge. And so the blood bank had to be in real time. And each of the staff put their blood type on a piece of paper and pasted it to the clinic wall. And the, the lady, the doctor, was O negative, which is the universal donor. So she was always giving blood. She gave blood more often than anyone else. A story is that she was operating on a lady in a C-section. The woman began to hemorrhage. So she scrubbed out, donated her own blood, scrubbed back in, saved the woman's life, as long, along with the healthy child. And here's my point. She did that so often. She gave so much of her own blood 
that she lived anemic. She was always tired. She was always weary. She was always a little sickly because she was always giving her blood to save the lives of Muslim women and children so she could love them in the name of Jesus. I want to thank each and every one of you in this church generally for your generosity to missions. Thank you for giving on a monthly basis. Thank you for your kingdom builders giving. We are very, very grateful. But I do want to ask this question. Have you bled yet? And are you willing to live anemic so that the gospel of Jesus can keep going and go to places it hasn't gone yet? Why would we do that? Because we want to go home. And because there's a beauty when we bleed as Jesus bled. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, we have this wonderful verse, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. What's the next phrase? And the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death that by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul is telling us something very priceless here. What's the context for the sufferings of Jesus? He suffered to redeem the world. When we join Jesus in suffering for the redemption of the world, not suffering because we're Republican, not suffering because we homeschool, not suffering because we're black, not suffering because we're a woman, not suffering because we vaxxed or didn't vax, masked or didn't mask, not for any of that. But when we join Jesus in suffering for the redemption of the nations, Paul is saying there's a knowledge of God there that cannot be gained anywhere else. You can't get it in an air-conditioned church. You can't get it at a Christian concert. You can't get it at home in your Lazy Boy with your coffee and a scented candle listening to worship music. No. But when you leave home and safety and comfort and suffer with Jesus that the nations might come and praise him around his throne, there's a knowledge of God there you can't get anywhere else. So we shouldn't be uh, uh, sad, if you will, about missionaries who leave home. We shouldn't be over-concerned about those who suffer for Jesus or are in prison. Why? Because they know Jesus in a way we don't. We should have a holy jealousy within us. We want to know Jesus that way. In the fellowship of his suffering, when we bleed a little bit with Jesus, when we live anemic with Jesus, there's a knowledge of God there unique and beautiful and precious. And if we don't have it, we should have a holy jealousy. We see this also in the life of Paul. In Acts chapter 16, he goes to Philippi. Lydia gets saved. A church is planted in her household. They cast a demon out of a slave girl. This slave girl was being trafficked. She could tell the future by demonic power. And when the demon is cast out, the handlers, the marketeers get upset, report Paul and Silas to the magistrates. Paul and Silas are beaten, bloodied up, stripped incarcerated, chained to a prison wall. An earthquake happens. Philippian jailer and his family get saved. And at the end of all of that, strangely, the magistrates come and ask Paul to leave the city. And Paul says, no, 
I'm a Roman citizen. What's going on here culturally? Well, in Greco-Roman civilization, there was a patron-client understanding in society. Patrons were wealthy, powerful. They could grant services. And clients then would receive those privileges and render obedience. And at the beginning of this story, the magistrates have the power. They're the patrons. But when Paul says, I am a Roman citizen, they realize they've made a catastrophic mistake. Because Roman law also said that no citizen could be punished without due process. There had to be a trial, a fair trial, before a Roman could be beat or imprisoned or fined. And when they discover that Paul was Roman and they hadn't given due process, they realize that all he has to do is report them to the governor and they lose their status, their position, and their income. So they come cap in hand, please don't cause us any trouble. We didn't know you were Roman. Please just leave the city. But the question for all of us is simply this. Why did Paul not play the Roman card before they sent him to prison and beat him and bloodied him up? He didn't have to go through that. He didn't have to be stripped naked and shamed and bloodied and put in prison. He could have slapped down that Roman card and say, nope, here's my get out of jail free card. You can't touch this. So why did he wait? Why did he, when he could have escaped persecution and suffering, why did he choose to go through it? Well, the last verse of the chapter, I think, gives us our answer. Right before he leaves town, he goes to Lydia's house. You know what he's doing culturally? See this woman? See the church in her house? She's with me. Because now there's been a power inversion. Now Paul has the power. And the magistrates have to do whatever he wants. She's with me. I'm leaving town. If you lift one finger against her, when I come back, I will report you to the authorities. Life, as you know, is, will be over. Don't touch the church. Don't touch Lydia. She's under my protection. Only possible because he chose to bleed a little bit. Was it wrong that Paul was Roman and had status? Privilege? No. Is it wrong to be American? Live in the Midwest? Have the privileges of family being nearby? Free babysitting and Chick-fil-A and sidewalks and public parks and libraries? And Is it wrong to have a cabin on the lake? Is it wrong to have a second car? Is it wrong to have an IRA and an investment portfolio for retirement? Any of those things wrong or sinful? No. Nothing wrong with any of those things. Are they privileges? Yes. But they're not sinful. Is there anyone here who's willing to lay down your Roman card for the sake of the Lydias and the Philippian jailers around the world? If Paul would have claimed his privilege, Lydia is unprotected, and that baby church gets wiped out, the Philippian jailer and his family did not come to Jesus. I am not trying to put anyone under guilt or manipulation. I'm just asking, how badly do you want to go home? And is there anyone who will leave home so that we can all go home? Because the path home is through the nations. And the requirements are that we fight like Jesus fought and we bleed 
like Jesus fled. You might be sitting here today and never ever considered that God might call you to be a missionary. But it is my belief that there are men and women in this room that Jesus is calling to lay down your privilege, not sinful, to just lay it down to the Lydia's and the Philippian jailers of the world. Is there anyone here that wants to go home so badly you're willing to bleed a little bit for the glory of Jesus and for the redemption of the nations? And to view that as the real privilege because then you will know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Because then you'll be conformed to his death and experience that life-giving resurrection power that brings the dead into the kingdom of God. We're going to have to fight if we want to go home. We're going to have to bleed if we want to go home. And finally, we're going to have to pray. We know that Jesus prayed often. We know that he prayed early. We know that he prayed about important decisions. We know that he prayed truths like, Father, glorify thy name and not my will but thine. But I think what intrigues me most about Jesus praying is that he was God incarnate. He was the God-man, meaning God prayed. Isn't that interesting? What's more staggering to me than God on the earth praying is that this same Jesus, crucified, resurrected, ascended to the right hand of the Father, resplendent in glory with all authority and power and dominion and knowledge and wisdom and might, what is Jesus doing right now? How is Jesus spending his eternal time? According to Hebrews 7.25, it says, We have a high priest who ever liveth to make intercession for us. Jesus is praying. Not only did God on the earth pray, God on the throne prayed. And if that is true, what should we be doing? But we don't always feel like praying, do we? At least I don't. A little while ago, my wife and I live in Saudi Arabia. And I was out for a, a walk like to do prayer walks in, in the evening, but I didn't feel like praying that evening, and so I was having an honest conversation with Jesus, and I said, Jesus, I don't feel like praying right now. I'm tired. Not only do I not feel like praying, I don't feel like evangelizing, I don't feel like discipling, I don't feel like being in ministry. I don't feel like being a leader. I don't want to answer one more email. I don't want any more pressure. I just want to get away and f go flip burgers in Montana somewhere where nobody knows my name. Just want to escape it all. And Jesus, this is a problem because I write the books and I travel the world and I yell at nice people in eastern Michigan and tell them that they have to fight and they have to bleed and they have to pray. And I don't feel like doing any of it right now. So Jesus, we got an issue. And Jesus is very tender, as you know, and very merciful. And he brought my wife Jennifer to mind, who I love very much. And Jennifer likes tiny houses. You all know what tiny houses are? And, you know, 
transform these small spaces into residential things. I don't like tiny houses. I have no interest in tiny houses. I don't care about tiny houses at all. But I wasn't born yesterday, right? So when my wife shows me a, a tiny house on her phone, I, what do I say? I love it, honey. That's awesome. Wonderful. Show me another one. Why? Because I'm very interested in my wife. I love her. And so I wrestle my rascally heart to be interested in what she's interested in. I said to Jesus, even though I don't feel like doing any of the things I'm supposed to, to be doing right now, it doesn't matter. What matters, Jesus, is that I love you. I love you. And so I'm going to wrestle my rascally heart to be interested in the things that you're interested in. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to witness, I'm going to disciple. And I will live with pressure, and I'll work even when I'm tired, because I love you, and because I want to glorify you. It does not matter what we feel like doing. What matters is if we love Jesus, and if we want to go home. If we love Jesus, we're interested in what he's interested in, and he's very interested in the world. So we wrestle our rascally hearts to do what Jesus wants us to do because we love him. It doesn't matter if you feel like being here at 8 o'clock in the morning for the church prayer meeting. We do it because we love Jesus. Not out of guilt. Not out of manipulation. It doesn't matter if you feel like giving to kingdom builders. We do it because we love Jesus. Not out of guilt, not out of manipulation. It doesn't matter if you feel like helping the poor or visiting your neighbor. It doesn't matter if you feel like getting up early before work. You can abide in the vine and read the word of God and pray for the nations. It doesn't matter what we feel like. What matters is, do we love Jesus? And do we want to go home? If the answer to those two questions is yes, and we wrestle our rascally hearts with the things that he wants us to do. It was 1942, middle of the Second World War. Winston Churchill was the prime minister in England. He had a problem. The coal miners went on strike. They weren't getting enough of a salary. They weren't getting the attention that the armed forces were getting. And this is a problem because the coal that they mined out of the earth fueled the, the British war effort. So Churchill went to them and he gave a famous speech, which I'll paraphrase. He essentially said this, we are going to win the war. And when we do, we're going to have a big old parade. And first in line will be the Air Force that beat the Luftwaffe in the Battle of Britain. They'll be cheered. Then will come the Navy that took supplies to our allies around the world. They will be honored. Then will come the Army who took the land and spilled their blood and sweat and and, and suffered, and they will be applauded, and all of them will be given praise. But at the end of that long parade will come a little band of dirty men, disheveled clothes and soot on their hands and their faces, the coal miners. And they shall be asked, where were you in England's darkest hour? And they shall reply, we were deep 
and the earth with our faces to the coal. We cut the coal that won the war. On the authority of God's word, we know that we are going to win the war. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 tells us, there will be a multitude of every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation around the throne. We are going to win the war. And when we do, we're going to have a big old parade. And first in line in that parade will come the apostolic fathers. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Peter, and Paul, and Timothy, and Titus. And all of them will be cheered. And after that will come the saints of the patristic period. Athanasius, and Origen, and Tertullian, and these giants of yore. And after that will come those of the Middle Ages, like Aquinas. And then the Reformation period. We'll have Luther there, and Zwingli, and Calvin. And all of them will be cheered. And after that will come the modern missionary giants. William Carey will be there. Hudson Taylor will be there. Lillian Treasure will be there. Lilius Trotter will be there. Men and women of renown, all of them will be praised. And then the saints of our generation, Billy Graham, he's going to get his reward. But at the end of all of those men and women of faith, will come a little, retired, 85-year-old grandmother from Michigan who lives on Social Security and is in a nursing home but gets up every morning at 5 o'clock and takes her worn-out missionary prayer cards and prays for those missionaries around the world that they will be filled one more time with the Holy Spirit, that they'll be covered one more day by the blood of Jesus, that they'll lead one more person into the family of God. And next to her come a little boy from the Congo. He doesn't even have shoes, never been to school, he walks two miles one way four times a week to a little mud stick church with a tin roof and dances his heart out and prays that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into the harvest field. And next to him will come a pastor from a Chinese house church who's been in solitary confinement for 30 years, never seen another human, to walk back and forth and pray that Jesus shall reign where'er the sun Doth its successive journeys run. His kingdom spread from shore to shore. Till moon shall wax and wane no more. Those three and thousands like yourselves around them will be asked. Where were you guys in earth's darkest hour? And you shall reply. We were down on our knees in the midst of the earth. With our faces the Lord. We prayed prayers that won the war. Let me ask you again. You love Jesus? You want to go home? Then let's fight like Jesus fought. Let's bleed like Jesus bled. Let's pray like Jesus prayed. Let's have that consecrated edginess that fixates on the worth of Jesus and his glory amongst all nations. And if anything gets in the way of that, let's run it over because Jesus is worthy and because we want to go home. We together now sit on the stone steps of school. There's some good things about school, but it's not home.
And our hope and our joy and our crown is when the king comes. And there shall be no night, no death, no curse, no sin, no tears. On that day, we press towards it with great hope and great faith and great commitment, fighting, leading, praying, so we can go home. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads. Pastor is coming to lead us in prayer. Would you close your eyes and bow your head? That concludes this week's podcast. To stay up to date with all things Rock Church, you can find us on Facebook and on Instagram as Rock Church MI. 